You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Her name is Anna Delvey or Anna Sorokin. No one's sure. She's either a mega rich German heiress or she's flat broke. And maybe she's Russian. Vivian, That's the point. No one knows. But everyone knows her now. Anna Sorokin was a con artist with an extravagant lifestyle who convinced New York's elite that she was a German heiress, conning acquaintances, banks and realtors. Well, the Anna Delvey Foundation is a private club, but it's also a dynamic visual arts center. I want it to be a place for people with taste. The drama series Inventing Anna was an instant hit for Netflix, but now it's turned into a legal headache. One of Anna's former friends is suing Netflix for portraying her as a backstabbing freeloader. Big night out? Oh, I, I was, um, I couldn't sleep. Living your best life. I see you, Rachel Williams. My guest is intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross, a partner at Catanuchin Rosenman. Terry, this was not a documentary. Netflix called it a drama inspired by a true story. And at the start of every episode, there was this disclaimer. This story is completely true, except for the parts that are totally made up. Does that protect Netflix in any way here? Not necessarily, June. In fact, I can't imagine a worse disclaimer being used. I really wonder about who came up with this. This story is completely true, except for the parts that are totally made up, but we don't tell you which parts those are. I mean, it's just bizarre. Indeed, I think to a certain extent, by saying at the start of the disclaimer, this story is completely true, you were sort of reinforcing the view that people have that this is just a recitation of the actual events as they occurred. So the complaint says that it's going to show that Netflix made a deliberate decision for dramatic purposes, basically to tell a better story, to show Williams doing or saying things that portray her as greedy, snobbish, disloyal, dishonest, cowardly, manipulative, and opportunistic. So is this false light invasion of privacy? Well, it might be. It's certainly 
not as clear-cut as the plaintiff seems to present it in the complaint. The core of false light invasion of privacy, which has elements very similar to defamation. So you got to show a false statement that somehow places the plaintiff in a false light. You have to show by clear and convincing evidence actual malice. And then you have to show that it was highly offensive. The portrayal was highly offensive to a reasonable person. Some of these factual claims, even if accepted as true, I'm not sure that in this day and age that a jury would find them highly offensive. Now, I will set aside the parts about the purported false billing on her credit card back to her employer. But these comments, greedy, snobbish, manipulative, disloyal, even if true, they don't really shock the conscience given what goes on in the world nowadays. And so I think that's a a big problem for the plaintiff here as, as to whether a jury in this day and age would find this to be, quote, unquote, highly offensive. And a lot of those traits, like disloyal, dishonest, cowardly, manipulative, opportunistic, Williams did work with police to get Sorkin arrested and testified against her. And some people might view her in that way. So that goes to the first part of the showing under a false light invasion privacy lawsuit. It's got to be a false statement. And if the statement is true, and in this case it sounds literally true in some cases, then you don't have a cause of action. I mean, as you say, she claims people will perceive her as being disloyal to friends or manipulative friends. And yet, what did she do? She, she dropped the dime on her friend and turned her into the police and set her up in a certain way. That's sort of exactly the definition of disloyal to your friends, isn't it? I think so. In an interview with The Hollywood Reporter, Shonda Rhimes, the executive producer and creator of this, did say, there was stuff that we invented because it needed to be invented to make the story really sing and be what it should be. So there's definitely fiction mixed in with truth. Is that an admission? Well, this is very typical of docudramas. If all you do is recite the same story that the news cycle has already inundated our homes with for months. People aren't going to tune in, or if they tune in, they're going to tune out before episode two comes up. So you've got to tweak the story in most docudramas to make it more interesting. And quite frankly, although the facts are often fascinating, the characters are often boring as heck. And so you got to sort of tweak the characters to make them a little bit more interesting. So I'm not surprised that the executive producer said those things. What's interesting here in terms of the lawsuit is the way that the plaintiff is attempting, almost in sort of a jujitsu move, to use that against Netflix by saying, this is evidence of malice. They made deliberate decision to change the facts. They confess, in effect, that there's fiction embedded in here. And that means that we've met our standard of showing malice, which is required under either of these causes of action, either under the defamation count of action or the false light cause of action. What I do find odd is that William's character is the only one in the show who's given a real person's name and who has the same employer and alma mater and home neighborhood as the real person. That struck me as odd. Would that show malice? It's certainly one of the elements that the plaintiff is trying to use. So let's be clear here. Both false light invasion privacy and defamation, as required by the Supreme Court of the United States, with respect to public figures, is that in order to not create a situation where you chill free speech, you have to show actual malice. 
and you have to show it by clear and convincing evidence, much higher evidentiary standard than for most elements of causes of action in a civil lawsuit. Here, the plaintiff points to four really specific things. The first one is they say malice is established by the fact that the production company hired a researcher to go look at what the facts actually were. Second, that the executive producer gave this interview, indicating that they had fictionalized certain elements. Third, the actress who played Rachel Williams also gave an interview in which she sort of explained her character motivation. And the plaintiff is saying that shows that there was a deliberate intent to malign her. And then the fourth thing they used to try to establish malice here is Ms. Williams' lawyers apparently sent two letters to either Netflix or the production company, a pre-airing of the first episode saying, you've got a bunch of factual mistakes here. We want you to correct them before you air these episodes. And therefore, they were on notice that there was something false, and they went ahead and did it anyway. Now, is that sufficient? That's going to be up to the jury. In these defamation cases, we allow malice to be inferred from circumstantial evidence. You don't need to show that there was a meeting between Netflix and executive producers and writers at which they discussed, oh, we have to malign this woman by saying things that are false about her. That would be direct evidence of malice. But the law does not require it here. The law allows you to infer from circumstantial evidence. And I think there's a reasonable argument on the plaintiff's part that they've shown enough circumstantial evidence that a reasonable jury could infer malice. Whether or not the jury will or won't, I don't know. But it may be good enough to get the case to an actual trial. I haven't seen any explanation of why they used her name, her real Uh, name. I haven't seen one either, June. And I have to tell you, when I first read the lawsuit, my immediate thought was, who the heck engaged in the clearance process here? I mean, I think, as you know, on docudramas like this or documentaries, straight up documentaries, um, there is uh, a clearance process by which lawyers or a legal team is brought in and they review the script, typically pre-production. They review the script vis-a-vis the actual facts and make recommendations or or clear it outright. And in this case, what you just identified, you're using her real name, her real employer, her real college, the real neighborhood she lived in. You You can't help but wonder how that did not get flagged during the clearance process. And there's a, a number of these issues that are identified in the complaint that just cause a lawyer who's involved in this sort of thing, as I am, to just scratch your head and go, what the heck happened here? Now, there is one possible explanation. It may not be that uh, the in-house or outside counsel who did this messed up the clearance process. It may be that they flagged these issues and there was a decision made by the producers, by Netflix, to go ahead anyway, because I mean, having engaged in this before, I sometimes will make recommendations to people and they'll say, well, that's nice. Thanks for calling our attention. <laughs> but the talent really wants that. And that's the quote you always hear. The talent really wants it that way, because we think the talent thinks that's more interesting or the talent thinks that I can get behind that character piece that <laughs> um, you hear these things all the time. And you know, television, the movies, music. The entertainment industry is heavily driven by what talent wants, Uh, you know, down to do they want no green M&Ms in their dressing room. So uh, often the producers, distributors, here Netflix, 
are handicapped, they get the suggestions from the lawyers, and they take them very seriously, and then are forced to do it anyway, because that's what the talent wants. And in those circumstances, it is very much a calculated risk that's being taken, and they have to weigh the risk versus the risk being the lawsuit versus the rewards, which is getting the talent to actually do the, the part or to release the script or whatever it is that there that the talent is thinking about. And, and that's one of the problems in these clearance processes. And it is often the source of these lawsuits in connection with docudramas. So do, is it odd they're suing Netflix but not Shonda Rhimes or Shondaland? I did find it unusual. Typically, a plaintiff will sue everybody under the sun who might uh, have some colorable responsibility or liability, just to be safe. I'm not saying that that there's anything wrong about that. Um, Often you don't know in advance uh, the exact uh, locus of liability, and it may not be with Netflix. It may be with a production company. The safest thing to do would be here to sue Netflix because they actually are the ones who, quote-unquote, published it with respect to defamation. And you have to show public publication of the defamatory statements in order to have a cause of action. Because if it's not published to the public, then you have been harmed. Because the harm that the plaintiff suffers is from um, a bad reputation, or in this case, being shown in a bad light. And so in that sense, clearly Netflix was a proper defendant. Williams optioned the rights to her Vanity Fair article and unwritten book, to HBO. Does that play in anywhere here? In I'm not sure it plays in as a legal matter. It depends on what got optioned. If it's just a very broad license to prepare a work about her experience here, it probably does not factor in in a legal sense. I think it has to have some bearing on why the lawsuit got brought in the first place. I mean, Netflix paid Anna Sorkin's $320,000 for the rights to her story and made this docudrama. Uh, clearly, Rachel Wilson was hoping HBO would be, be, do the same, but now that Netflix has come to the market so quickly, there may no, be no value to HBO in pursuing a project like this. And um, that may have had a financial impact. I don't know. I don't know the details of uh, her option agreement, but one wonders if that might have been part of the motivation for filing the lawsuit here. These things don't normally go to trial, do they? No, very seldom. They are typically settled, um, and uh, I can think of at least one other dismissal of a lawsuit against Netflix that uh, was probably the result of settlement, similar situation as this involving a docudrama. Um, it just makes no sense to take these that far. The plaintiff is really just looking for damages in the form of money, and usually um, the amounts aren't super large because it's very hard to show economic harm at trial. There is a presumption of harm if, if Netflix is found liable on the defamation per se, but that's just a presumption that there was harm. It's not a presumption as to the quantum of harm, which still has to be proved up with relative certainty. 
So that makes it very tricky because most juries on something like this are not going to award millions of dollars. So the dynamics are there to uh, really lead to a settlement in these types of cases. And sometimes you get well into discovery, but settlement usually happens relatively quickly in these types of lawsuits. In the complaint, there are, I think, 16 sets of facts that Williams claims are untrue. What caught your eye there? One set of those 16 revolves around the depiction of how she used her corporate Amex card. And, you know, as a lawyer practices in this area, that was the one that grabbed me, that really stood out. I said, oh, boy, if she's right about this, this is a real problem for Netflix. Her second cause of action is for defamation, per se. And under regular defamation, you have to show that you somehow actually got harmed by this false statement. But there are certain categories that historically Anglo-Saxon law said were so serious, a false statement, that we presume as a matter of law that the person who was defamed was harmed, and therefore they don't have to prove up actual harm. And here, this one category, commission of a crime, is arguably directly implicated by the allegations of how the plaintiff used her corporate Amex credit card. And if her allegations are correct, it seems like that's a really strong case of defamation per se, and could be one of the more serious charges against Netflix. And also, again, in my mind, raises questions. What were the lawyers thinking here? It clearly was implying that she'd committed a crime of some sort, fraud against her employer, which is a pretty serious charge to make nowadays. And I think a jury would consider that to be exactly the sort of highly offensive allegation, which if false, they would be willing to return a verdict on. As you know, this isn't the first time Netflix has been sued over projects based on real life. Alan Dershowitz has sued over his portrayal in an Epstein docuseries. A parent involved in the college admissions scandal sued over a documentary. And a former Soviet chess grandmaster sued over her portrayal in The Queen's Gambit. That's been settled. And interestingly, the lawyer who represents Williams represented the grandmaster. So I tell clients, all the time, that you have to develop a reputation as being willing to take questionable lawsuits to verdict, go all the way. Millions for defense, not a dime in tribute was said about the War of 1812. And where you have a corporate defendant like Netflix with large pockets that seems to regularly settle these things, it just invites more lawsuits of this sort. This is not limited to this field or to the entertainment field. This is true across all civil litigation. If you set yourself up, if you hang a target on your back as an easy mark, plaintiff's attorneys will come after you. Now, you could also draw the inference that perhaps there's something wrong with the clearance process at Netflix. And certainly if I were the general counsel there, I'd want to look harder at that to see if there is an issue with the clearance process or whether these were just known calculated risks being taken and they sort of lost the bet that someone wouldn't sue over it. So it is perplexing that they keep cropping up with respect to Netflix. Netflix does do a lot of docudramas, and docudramas are where the greater risk is than a purely fictional work. So maybe it's also the line of business content that they're pursuing here. It is troublesome, though. Troublesome but interesting. Thanks so much, Terry. That's Terrence Ross of Catamute and Rosenman. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. 
Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.